Good morning. My name is Meredith Barnes. The scripture reading today comes from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. I'll be reading from chapter 11, verse 45. Hear the word of the Lord. For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy, because I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Meredith. Well, with the beginning of Lent, we have a new series that we're starting today and that will go throughout Lent, and that series is on probably the most difficult book of the Bible. Um, there's a headline from the Babylon Bee. It says, local man sets more realistic goal of reading Bible until he gets to Leviticus. And the story goes like this, in an attempt to be more realistic and honest with himself with his Bible reading goals this year, Local man Mike Patson resolved to read Genesis and Exodus this year and then, quote, Peter out around Leviticus chapter 2, end quote, (laughs) which makes me wonder how many Bible in a year reading plans have been derailed by the book of Leviticus. I mean, it's only the third book of the Bible and probably one of the most difficult. And so we're trying to tackle it this Lent, and I'm kind of energized at the um, challenge, if you will, of it, Um, but also, too, we we need not be afraid of, of any part of God's Word. It's all God's Word, and so... And we want to make sure that we're not ignoring any parts of it. Um, a cool element of this uh, series and kind of what's a motivating factor for me is I am preaching this in parallel to Brian Jacobson at First Presbyterian Oosberg. And so he and I have the same passage every single week. So he's also preaching Leviticus 11.45 this week. So if you go to oosbergfpc.org and go to service videos, you can find the ways that he treats these passages. Um, and then you'll be getting two different voices on the same passage. Um, so I want to encourage you to be doing that and, and getting both, um, both perspectives. Um, so it makes sense to begin then with a little bit of sun trivia, uh, because why wouldn't we start Leviticus with a bunch of trivia on the sun, okay? First question and I'm going to hide, hide this answer because the sage boys like the screen cheat. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, they're like, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay. First question. What are the dark circles on the sun called? A, the Dalmatian effect. B, celestial belly buttons. C, the eye of Sauron. Or D, sunspots. Lock in your answer. Three, two, one. It is. Shout it out. Shout it out. D, sunspots, of course. Okay. Next one. How hot is the sun's core? A, 27 million degrees. B, 2.7 million degrees. C, 270 million degrees. Or D, 2 billion degrees. Okay, lock in your answer. All right, three, two, one. It is A. Who had A? Raise your hand if you had A in there. Okay, a few people. Yeah, 27 million degrees. That's really hot. Um, In a scale model of the solar system, using the Earth as a grape and the sun as a beach ball, so we're building a scale model and we got the Earth as as a grape and the sun as a beach ball, how far apart would we have to place them for this model to be to scale? A, 19 feet, B, 490 feet, C, 78 feet, or D, 1,220 feet. Okay, lock in your answer. Three, two, one, it is 490 feet, which gives you perspective on how far away the sun is from our earth, that even at that scale, it's still 490 feet away. Okay, what is the most common element in the sun? Oxygen, hydrogen, iron, or helium? Okay, three, two, one, who cares? It's hydrogen, (laughs) B, no, I'm kidding. Scientists are like, who cares? <laughs> I'm like, whatever. I don't even know what that is. Hydrogen. <laughs> whatever that is. Okay. How many Earths could fit inside the sun? 100, 1,000, 1 million, or 1 billion? Okay. Lock in your answer. Three, two, one. It is C, 1 million Earths. That's how big the sun is. Big sun. So there's a picture here. You can, it's a scaled picture. 
So you can barely even see the planets next to, or at least Earth, next to the sun. I mean, that's how big that thing is. So very, very big. Okay, next one. How long does it take light from the sun to reach Earth? A, 11 seconds. B, 8 minutes. C, 15 minutes. Or D, 45 minutes. Shout out your answer. Three, two, yes, it is B. It is B. It's eight minutes. Okay? What kind of star is our sun? Yellow dwarf, white dwarf, yellow giant, red giant. Okay? Lock in your answer. Three, two, one. It is a yellow dwarf. Letter A. Um, a person weighing 50 pounds on earth would weigh how much on the sun? A, 920 pounds. B, 1,650 pounds. C, 2,700 pounds. D, 4,200 pounds. Okay, lock in Egypt. It's a guess, Melinda. It's a guess. All right. All right. You would weigh over two tons. Letter D. You'd weigh over two tons on the, on the earth. Um, I mean, on the sun. Okay, what is the top speed? So top speed now for solar wind coming out of the sun. It's 3,000 kilometers per hour, 30,000 kilometers per hour, 300,000 kilometers per hour, or 3 million kilometers per hour. Top speed is actually D, 3 million kilometers per hour. So it begins, it leaves the sun at 10 kilometers per second, and then it accelerates all the way up to 800 kilometers per second for a top speed of 3 million kilometers per hour. That's some fast-moving solar wind. Um, what spacecraft holds the record for closest approach to the sun? A, the Parker Space Probe, B, the Helios 2, C, Pioneer 5, or D, Ulysses spacecraft. Okay? A, it is A. Someone said A. All right, Peggy, Parker Space Probe. Peggy knows her space. Um, so there's a, it's, it's in orbit around the sun and Venus, and then the closest it's come is 3.83 million miles away from the sun. Isn't that crazy that that's the closest thing that's been to the sun? is still 3.83 million miles away. So wild. Um, okay, that ends our sun trivia. So congratulations, you all, for playing sun trivia. So we're going to set the sun aside for a second, and we're going to come back to it later. But the book of Leviticus needs to be understood within the relational context, okay? There's a whole relational narrative, a whole relational story that undergirds the book of Leviticus, and it doesn't make any sense unless you understand this relational context that undergirds the book of Leviticus. So what I want to do is I just want to tell you a little story, which is the relational context of Leviticus, because this whole story is the backing for the content that we find in Leviticus. So just kind of sit back and relax as I set up the narrative for you and set up this relational context that we find um, in the book of Leviticus. Before anything existed, before the universe, before time, before space, there was God. God, as the only existing being and the unmoved mover, moved to speak creation into existence. The Spirit of God breathed and creation was formed. Planets, stars, and galaxies found their place. Plants, animals, and landforms sprung into being on the surface of the earth. On the sixth day of creation, God breathed life into the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Humans were set apart from the rest of creation as God's crowning achievement, tasked with the job of cultivating God's reign over the earth. So humans and God lived together in the Garden of Eden in perfect harmony. On the seventh day, after God had created Adam and Eve, God rested from his creative work and took up his cosmic throne. He began ruling over all he had made. The Bible marks God's transition from creating to ruling as a day that is set apart and holy from the other days of the week. Genesis 2 verses 1 to 3 says, So the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. 
And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. But Adam and Eve disrupted this harmonious arrangement when they attempted to seize the power and status of God himself. They disobeyed God by eating fruit from the tree that God had declared off limits. By disobeying God, humans brought sin into the world which drove a wedge into their relationship with God. No longer could humans live in perfect harmony with God, so Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. The humans were banished from God's presence. But our God is both loving and good. Though sin has driven God and humans apart, God's loving goodness drives Him to bring humanity back into His presence. God will not let the separation of sin and death be the last word. So He throws Himself into the work of bringing humanity back into His presence. God comes to a man named Abraham, and God promises Abraham a family that will grow so large that they will become a nation. God makes good on His promise and multiplies Abraham into a nation of people But this nation of people, the Israelites, find themselves oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. So God raises up a Hebrew man named Moses. God appears to Moses in a bush that's on fire, but this bush is unique in that it doesn't burn up. As Moses draws near, God said, Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Moses enters into this holy space, and God explains his rescue plan. Moses, under God's leadership, will lead the people out of Egypt. God sends plagues upon the Egyptians, which finally convinces the Egyptian king to let the people leave. So Moses leads Israel out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea and ultimately to the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai. The Israelites make camp at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it's here that God recommits himself to bringing humans and God back together again. It's here at Sinai that God is rededicating himself to the mission of gathering humans to be the cultivators of his reign. God chooses Israel to pick up the baton of cultivating and spreading God's reign. He tells his people, now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth, for all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel Just like Adam and Eve were set apart from the rest of creation as God's reign cultivators, now Israel is receiving the task of being set apart to cultivate and spread God's reign. God is committing himself to gather a people who will cultivate and spread his reign, and he is recommitting to the mission of living with humanity. So he instructs Moses and the people to build a tent called a tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the center of the Israelite camp, and it functioned as God's home. The tabernacle provided God a place to live in the midst of his people. Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden. They were sent out of God's presence, but in the tabernacle, we see God's desire to live with his humans. So Moses and the people build the tabernacle. And at the end of the book of Exodus, the tabernacle is complete and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, but the people cannot go in. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34 to 35. Exodus closes with Moses unable to go into the tabernacle. And this is why Leviticus is the next book in the Bible. Let's look again at our scripture reading today, Leviticus eleven forty-five. 45. 
It says, For I, the Lord, am the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy, because I am holy. I like to divide this verse into two halves. The first half I call the relational context, which is the narrative you just heard leading up to the book of Leviticus. God reminds his people that I'm the one who's brought you out of Egypt, saved you from slavery, brought you all the way to Mount Sinai, and I am the one who is recommitting to living in relationship with you. I am the one who is recommitting myself to you. I am the one who is recommissioning you as people who will be the cultivators of my reign. And it's out of that relationship that you must be holy because I am holy, which transitions us into this second part of the verse that I like to call the holiness problem. This is the book of Leviticus. This is the question, the holiness problem. Why could Moses not go in the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus? This is the reason for the book of Leviticus, is the holiness problem. How do sinful humans who have rebelled against God and driven a wedge into their relationship with God live in proximity to a God who is holy and set apart? How do humans who are dirty with sin and who have broken their relationship with God by rebelling against Him live in proximity with a God who is holy and set apart? And what I want to do, this is the holiness problem of, Levit- I can't say it, of Leviticus. What I want to do is I want to take you through three metaphors to help us wrap our minds around this idea of holiness and this holiness problem that the book of Leviticus is addressing. When I was a kid, like many kids, I loved to eat Lucky Charms. Who likes to eat Lucky Charms in here? Raise your hand. Like, like, yeah, yeah. All right. JB likes Lucky Charms too. All right. Loved Lucky Charms as a kid. Now, I purposely got the image of the box where the rainbow charms were, were introduced. All right. I remember this as a kid when rainbow charms came out. And in my household, Lucky Charms was a bit of a splurge uh, because more often we had Malto Meals Marshmallow Mateys, um, which come in the bag. <laughs> the knockoff brand. You get twice as much for half the price. Um, but actually, uh, Marshmallow Mateys were a pretty good substitute. Like I was, I'm, I'm, These are pretty good as far as like a knockoff brand goes. So I had Marshmallow Mateys. Um, but I've heard that moms would have to say to their kids, uh, because there's, there's two parts to Lucky Charms, right? You've got the charms, which are the delicious marshmallows that everybody loves. And then you have Luckies, all right, which are the other part. All right? And I've heard moms that had to tell their kids, like, you can't just eat the charms, you also have to eat your Luckies. Right? Is there a mom in here that had to say that to their children? You also have to eat, yeah, yeah, you also have to eat your Luckies. You can't just eat the charms, which every kid loves to do. right? Well, I, I never had that problem because I liked it all. And you know, it was like a treat to be, especially if it was true blue Lucky Charms. That was like a treat, all right? But I never had that problem. What I would do is, first of all, the bowl's really full, so you, know, you just kind of eat it as it comes to you. But as you get down to the bottom of the bowl, I would start to set my charms apart and eat my luckies so that, you know, I'm, I'm setting apart the charms, eating the luckies, eating the luckies, so that, like, if you do it right, the last three or four bites of your cereal are all charms, right? <laughs> Save the best for last, right? So you eat your luckies first, then you got all charms on the spoon to finish it off. Gorgeous. Then you got the pink milk to drink on top of it. Um, so I would set my charms apart so that I could eat my luckies because I wanted to save the best for last, save the, the charms for last. So I say all this to simply say that to be holy means to be set apart. I would set my charms apart. To be holy means to be set apart. It is the Hebrew word kadosh, which means to be set apart. Now, I think a lot of us think that holiness uh, relates to like some sort of moral purity or right action or doing the right thing, right, or, or being... Um, or being good, 
It actually means to be set apart, all right? To be kadosh, set apart. And you saw holy come up in all those points in the narrative context of Leviticus. The Sabbath day was set apart as a different day of the six days of the week. Six days you work, on the seventh you rest. Six days God did the work of creating, on the seventh day he began ruling. You heard the word set apart applied to Adam and Eve. They are set apart from the rest of creation because they are to be God's reign cultivators. We have reason. We have lots of faculties that the rest of creation does not have. We are to be God's reign spreaders, his imagers. The nation of Israel picks up that baton from Adam and Eve and becomes a holy nation of kingdom priests, a set-apart group of people that are separate from the other nations in this world because they're going to live differently and show the other nations of the world who God is. The Israelites were set apart because they were to live differently, and in living differently, they were supposed to reflect who God was, is, to the other nations. And then also you had Moses approaching the burning bush, and God says from the bush, take off your shoes because this is set-apart space. This is special land that you're on right now. This is a holy space, so it's set apart. It's different, so take off your shoes because they're covered in sheep dung. Take those off, okay? So to be holy means to be set apart. I set my charms apart. To be holy means to be set apart. Also, the sun, if you think about the sun, now we're coming back to the sun in our solar system. Uh, The sun is set apart. The sun is unique. Uh, There's only one sun in our solar system. It's the only star, and it is the center of our solar system in that all the planets uh, orbit around the sun. So the sun is unique. It is set apart. It is good. Right? The sun is a good thing for us because if the sun were to cease to exist, we would cease to exist. We depend on the sun for our life here on earth. And it's fascinating to me that the earth is positioned the perfect distance from the sun. Any closer we burn up, any further away we freeze. And also it's on this perfect axis that if it were to tilt at all, the polar ice caps would melt and we would all drown. So we depend on the sun for our life. It's, it's good, all right? The sun sustains our life here on earth. But the sun is also dangerous because if you get too close to the sun, you burn up. So in the same way, God is holy like the sun. He's set apart like the sun. He's unique like the sun. He is good because he is responsible for all of the life in our universe. This is what makes him holy is the fact that he is the only being who spoke creation into all of existence. He is the unmoved mover. He is the one who, when there was nothing and only him, he breathed out and creation came into existence. Time and existence itself were born when he breathed breathed out. This is why he is holy and set apart, because he is the author of life. Just like the sun gives us life here on earth or sustains life here on earth, God authored all of life. Sun can also be dangerous, though. You get too close, you burn up. You get too close to God's holiness, you die. The Parker Space Probe that our quiz mentioned is the closest object that's ever come to the sun, just under 4 million miles away. And what I learned as I learned about this Parker Space Probe is that you can't just launch a space probe at the sun. (laughs) You'd miss it because the Earth is orbiting around the sun and Venus is orbiting around the sun. So if you were to just shoot a probe straight at that sun, um, there's heat factors and radiation factors, but then also the movement of the planets and the star, uh, comes into play. You'd miss the sun. So they had to do all these calculations and all these orbital you know, logistics to figure out how to get the probe to orbit around the sun and Venus. So right now the sun is orbiting around, uh, sorry, the probe is orbiting around the sun and Venus, and it's going to make several passes around the sun so that they can study the sun several times over. 
right? So it's making those orbits. But there's a lot of work that went into getting this probe toward the sun. I mean, also, too, you don't want to get the probe too close to the sun because the probe's going to burn up. And so the probe has a, a heat shield on the front to protect itself from the sun's heat and the radiation. It's got a whole cooling system. Actually, there's only a gallon of water in that thing. A gallon of water cycles through that, and it keeps the probe cool so it doesn't burn up from the sun. So it has all this stuff to make sure that it can get close to the sun but protect it from burning up in the sun because the sun is good, but the sun is dangerous. All right? In the same way, so they had to think about all these things, the mission, they had to think about the orbital logistics, they had to think about the heat shield and the radiation shield just to get this probe within close proximity to the sun. And in the same way, the book of Leviticus takes into all these account all these things so that sinful humans can approach God and get into proximity with God without dying. Just like the space probe took all this work. Oh my goodness, now I'm throwing things around. The space probe took all this work just to get it within close proximity of the sun. Leviticus is all of these regulations and rites and, 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 and practices that people participate in so that humans can approach a set-apart holy God without dying. In the same way that the sun emanates heat outward, and it gets more intense as you get closer to it, God's holiness emanates outward. And so there's, if you will, a ring around God of his holiness. And this is Leviticus preparing the people to approach that ring of holiness that's around God. Is it making sense so far? Yeah, I, I, I think it's the easiest to understand this in metaphors. This is why I'm talking metaphors today. Last metaphor. Many of you know this, but presidential travel is a big deal. Okay? I mean, there's, there's uh, uh, what do you call them? Secret Service. Secret Service is um, at the location like a month ahead of time. Like if they know the president's going to visit a city, Secret Service will get to that city a month ahead of time and already start to make the plan. Like they're identifying hospitals and they're identifying transportation routes and they're looking at various blind spots and danger zones and things like that. I mean, like you ever seen the movie Shooter? I love that, like with Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, you've seen that, JB. Yeah, that, you know, they, they try to look into all these security concerns with, with the president, right? So they're doing that like a month ahead of time already. They're coming up with the plan, all right? And then when the president does travel and he travels on Air Force One, uh, the, the, his is the only plane that's coming into the air, that airport. I mean, that becomes like a no-fly zone, and there's like a 30-mile bubble around Air Force One that becomes a no-fly zone. So there's no planes moving when he's coming into the airport. Uh, he's the only one that's coming in. No other planes are leaving. No other planes are coming. They're the only one. So it's a no-fly zone. Then when he travels on the road, he's not only part of a motorcade of like 20 vehicles, so 20 vehicles accompany the president, but then they shut down the whole road. So his motorcade is the only people that are traveling on that road. They shut the whole highway down. He's the only one so they can just go, and there's less security concerns. Then when he stays, I'm saying he because we've only had he so far. Um, then when he goes to the hotel, the whole floor is vacated for the president and presidential staff, but they have like a hotel sandwich, okay? So the whole floor that the president is on is vacated. The floor above him is all vacated, and the floor below him is all vacated as well. So you can't even get near the floor that the president is staying on, and sometimes they'll even just vacate the entire hotel. Like when, they, we, when he's staying there. This is all from an article I read on Business Insider that's laying all this out. So I say all this to say that a person who travels with that type of exclusivity and that type of set-apartness is not just someone who you can walk into their office and visit them one day. You cannot just walk into the Oval Office and visit the president. 
And those who do get the privilege of visiting the president, I assume there's a vetting process that happens beforehand. There's security that they have to go through. I assume there's a dress code and there's all sorts of rules of what you can and can't do when you're in the present presence of the president in the Oval Office. You cannot just go visit the president. I was thinking about this this morning, and I've only seen the president like in live and real life once. Right? And I really want, if you ever get the chance to, doesn't matter if you voted for the president or not, just seeing the president in real life is a really cool thing. And I want my kids to see the president, regardless of how we feel about him or her. Like, I want my kids to be able to see the president someday. I got to see the president once in my life, in real life, and I'm looking, and there's all sorts of secret service that are walking around. I mean, that makes, makes sense, right? But even the press, um, there were lines on the ground where they could and could not go. Like, it's like, okay, here's the line, and all the press is behind this line now, and then they get vacated from that place, and now they have to go even further away behind this line, and then they get vacated from that place, and they have to go even further away behind this line. Okay, so it's this, it's this you know, almost like pushing of outward of where people can be, and I thought to myself, as I watched that security, as I watched the Secret Service, I mean, they're constantly scanning. You know, their eyes are just going like this constantly. And I thought to myself, you know, if I were to just start running toward the president right now, like, I, I, am, I am not armed. I'm not armed. But if I were to just start running toward the president, I'd get shot. That would be a dumb idea because they would shoot me. No questions asked. Threat. Bam. He's gone. I say all this to say that the president is a set-apart person in the same way to approach God in his set-apartness and in his holiness unrightfully is dangerous. You die. You approach the president unrightfully, you die. You approach God unrightfully, you die. This is the book of Leviticus. How do sinful humans approach a holy and set-apart God without dying? The book of Leviticus actually saves the life of humanity because they can live in proximity with the, with, the, with, the, with the God who is holy and set apart without dying. What's interesting is, is the book of Leviticus is all about humans making this approach to a holy and set apart God. It's about humans coming into God's space. But in Jesus, we have a reversal because it is not about humans approaching God's space. Rather, it is God leaving his space to come to humans. Isn't that cool? In Leviticus, humans approach God without dying. And in Jesus, Jesus leaves his space to come to humans and to die. He comes to humans as a human. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we have this tabernacle, which is where God's holy set-apart presence is. And in Jesus, we have the tabernacle himself come to us as one of us. This is how much God is committed to living with his people. These ever-revealing plan of his so that he can inhabit the same space as us, which will one day be made complete when he comes back. That's the cool thing that we have in Scripture, is God's commitment to living with his humans. Praise the Lord for Jesus, who comes to us. And today we have a chance.